Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. This gripping and beautifully rendered drama from filmmakers Christine Malloy and Joe Lawler, Rose plays Julie, tells the tale of Rose, a young veterinary student who wants to know who her biological parents are and the facts of her true identity for as long as she can remember. Rose, played by Ann Skelly, decides to contact Ellen, played by Orla Brady, the birth mother who gave her up for adoption. But Ellen, now a successful London-based actress, doesn't want to know her. Undeterred, Rose presses forward. The film again is called Rose Plays Julie, and we're so fortunate and honored to have with us today the co-directors as well as the co-writers of the film, and that would be Christine Malloy and Joe Lawler. The broad outlines of the story behind Rose Plays Julie is a relatively straightforward story. It's about a young woman who was given up for adoption who is now trying to track down her birth parents. From that premise unfolds a very complex internal psychological story. Tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind Rose Plays Julie. Um, I, it came about, like most of our projects, bit by bit, you're trying to think about what you want to do next and um, what we have done in the past. Although we do less of it now, maybe it's because of the pandemic, I'm not sure, um, but somehow our working pattern has changed over the last year and a half. But in the past, we've done a lot of, we walk and talk, because we work together and we write scripts together, um, it's hard to sit down in front of a blank page with another person. Actually, in our experience, it's impossible. You need to get to a stage where you're ready to write. So normally for us, that involves long walks where we talk a lot. Um, and where we live in London, there's a walk we can take along a series of canals that brings us to the Thames. So it's a very satisfying walk. You get to a destination and then you can you know, think on the way and talk on the way back as well. So you kick ideas around over the course of, you know, the whatever hour and a half it takes us to get to the Thames and back again and, and slowly build up a series of ideas um, or identify things that you're in, that we individually are interested in so that we can, they can kind of coalesce and begin to gather and build momentum because, you know, once you embark on writing a script, you'll be, working on something possibly for years. So it needs to be something that you're really interested in exploring and digging into and trying to pull apart and interrogate, which is the way we approach any, you know, piece of work that we're going to make. Um, I can't pinpoint exactly how the idea started. I know there was a few things on our mind. Um, there's a, an ongoing theme in our work to do with thinking about identity and identity under duress and what makes us who we are. Um, there was also an interest, I don't know where it came from um, exactly, but in thinking about um, rape in our society and how rape is represented on screen and how it's thought about and the idea of um, somebody who is rape conceived. So that 
that part of rape that doesn't get explored and screened that often, which is the, the very um, troubling side of rape where it can lead to the birth of a child. Um, and we knew we wanted to look at that. Um, in the background, of course, we know in this country the horrific figures to do with um, how rape is dealt through the judicial system and how shocking it is to know that even today, despite the Me Too movement, et cetera, um, you know, rape conviction figures are way down. Even um, uh, rape to be brought in front of the courts, the figures are way down. Um, it's like something like in the region of five to six percent of all rapes are even end up in front of a judge. So it's a very troublesome crime. It's deeply problematic. We obviously struggle with it as a society because um, it's almost become normalized. It's almost not a crime. <laughs> if we're to look at the conviction rates, I think you could argue that it's, it's been seen as something that's, that, that we don't seem able to deal with in the, the ways that we should be able to deal with and through the justice system. So um, in our approach to our work, it's always really important how we make a, a film not just what the film is about, but also how we go about what, what it's going to feel like to sit down in a cinema and experience this piece of cinema that we're trying to make. Um, and in that regard, we began very early on to think about Rose Place Judy as almost like a Greek tragedy. So to have that idea of a, a story about a mother and a father and a daughter and to kind of set it in motion the way you might think about a Greek tragedy. There's a sense that it's only going in one direction. Um, even if you're not completely convinced what, or sure about what that direction is, there's a sense that we're going towards, heading towards something. Um, and yeah, they would be a lot of the thoughts that were in our mind as we were you know, making these journeys before we sat down to actually start writing. The writing process is always a very different thing. That's where you get down to the nitty gritty and the nuts and bolts and it you know, changes a lot. And, um, but you know, that's a different part of the, the journey. So let's pick it up from there. So you have a script, you feel like it's at a point where you're ready to move forward with the project. When you go to the idea of casting particular actors or how are you going to go about bringing other people into this, um, what is that like? What, is, what does that look like for you? It, the, the, the casting of films is always kind of like, I mean, we're learning more as we go along. I mean, a lot of our early work uh, involved just local communities. We didn't involve any professional actors in a body of short films that we made and even our debut feature film called Helen that uh, involved basically local communities across a number of cities. And we kind of liked that uh, realness that real people could bring to the screen, um, you know. And, and so it was just through a process of evolution that we began to uh, work on scripts that actually would need professional actors because there's a limit, a limit. You have to kind of know what the boundaries are when you're working with a non-professional. So I guess that it's, it, it still remains to us a little bit of a dark art casting. I mean, it's an early conversation you have with people. What have you got in mind about casting? And I always hate those conversations because they're really stupid. You might say, oh, we have an idea for a film and, you know, Julianne Moore would be great. 
you know, it's like the opening scene from the player, you know what I mean? You know, you know, Julia, Julia Roberts, I think I can get to her, you know, I know her people. And so you think, well, look, you know, maybe if you've got, you know, a few million in your back pocket, possibly you can get them. Um, but we never really think about that in terms of uh, who's going to play those parts because it nearly always comes in at the very, very end. And it's sort of it's well past the finance or the, the writing. It's in a process of looking for financing. And then, and then it's purely down to how much money you might have. And so if you're not fully financed, you're not really going to get a named actor to play any parts because they want to know, uh, is this fully financed? And they, I mean, we saw it there in Cannes recently. Leah Sado was in four films in competition or across the Cannes Film Festival, or uh, Tilda Swinton was in four. It seems like the same small amount of actors seem to be acting in all the films. Uh, and it doesn't seem to really spread the love, it would appear to us. And the reason for that is that's not their fault. It's because some films or a lot of films will get extra finance based on who's in it because there's a market value. Now, of course, there have been films that have come out. And I think it was about, I don't know, a number of years ago, Robert Redford was in a film with Kate Blanchett and it's opening weekend. I think it took them 70 pounds. So when a film comes out, I don't think people really care that much who's in it. They just want to know, is this a really good film? That's the first and foremost. But before it ever gets made in financing and packaging, people really want to know who's in it in terms of finance. But it makes no sense to me. Um, so and you always have to cut your cloth in terms of how much money you have. And so we had a certain amount in the budget. And we knew our central character was going to be this young woman. But one thing you have to do is to engage the services of a casting director because they, they are the ones on the ground who've got their finger on the pulse in terms of talent or new talent. And there aren't many 21-year-olds who would be quite well known. I mean, there are some, but again, they're already going up the mountain and you're, you know, you, you know, you'll get a nosebleed if you try and start following them. So we kind of keep it at, at where we think we can live. And we, we had initially about 30 young women to play that part. And we interviewed and met about 12 of them, I'd say. And then we got it down to the last three and then two. And there was just really something about Anne that was really very special for us. And it's a very tricky thing to have, which is a sort of an a kind of a, a, an innocence, for want of a better word, somebody who's very open and optimistic and um, wants to welcome the world in a positive sense, but then also somebody who possibly uh, is incredibly dangerous <laughs> or has the capacity to do something very dangerous. So in a way, uh, we always felt quite uh, like a dangerous cat or something, um, sort of beautiful to look at, uh, but if they pounce, you're gone. And uh, there was something about Anne who seemed to have kind of embody these kind of uh, incredible qualities. And um, and of course, we fully believe uh, that she did an amazing job. And and really, mm -hmm. that was part of the tricky tricky balancing act because you can, to some degree, actors can kind of orientate performances in different directions. But essentially. 
most really good actors are just very bright people who will make their own decisions. And you're sort of, you can direct a little bit, but ultimately you have to kind of just get out of their way. All you're really doing is framing the kind of tone or the temperature gauge of a particular scene. But if they've done their work, which good actors do and done their homework, they'll have a really good sense of how they want to play it in dialogue with you. But once you start filming, there's not a lot of time to sit around and discuss the scene. You kind of have to really know how you want to play that scene. And, and you know, that's why I think really good actors have done their homework, are very prepared and make the role better than what you've written, actually. And mm -hmm. I think someone like Anne and Orla, of course, uh, and Aidan do that. Regarding the two actresses that you enlisted in this project, Orla Brady and Anne Skelly, both gave terrific performances, and particularly in terms of them getting to know one another, this kind of cat and mouse game that they play at the beginning of the film, and how they become increasingly more familiar with one another and comfortable in terms of their emotions and how this, their story is playing out. But there's a scene at the very beginning of the film, the film where we see um, Rose standing out on this beach area and looking out at the ocean. And the way you shot her, the way the sort of look on her face, it really sets it up for so much of the rest of the movie. She has this kind of countenance. Her face is innocent, yet it seems like an old soul. And there's, I don't know how you were able to get this out of that particular scene, but it's just a beautiful way to introduce us to the character. And in some ways, this kind of very primordial, primitive kind of emotional landscape that we're going to be playing in over the course of this film. I think that Anne has one of those special qualities as an actor, like, so I would say that she is very much the real deal and that the, the camera loves her. Um, because if you meet Anne in real life, um, you know, she's, she's a fantastic personality and she's very, very funny. Um, but she just seems, you know, pretty normal and regular, but you put a camera on her and her, her face has this radiance to it, but also she's a thinker. And I think that's her biggest strength. She is a real thinker. So the wheels are turning inside her head and she can convey a loss without doing a huge amount. So it's easy to put the camera on her face and let her own intelligence come through and do the work. Um, and she, she has, for such a young actress, she has that in spades. Um, and I, I don't think you can necessarily, I don't think you can teach that. I think some people have that extra special quality about them. And Anne is just one of those people who does. I mean, I'm thrilled for her that she got this um, opportunity to shine in the Nevers as well, because um, I think uh, despite the difficulties with the show, she's gotten a lot of positive reaction, and rightly so, because I think, um, you know, she... She is a very intelligent, intuitive actress who's got this extra little special ingredient. Um, and, I, and I hope she gets the chance to, you know, to be in films that challenge her and, you know, bring her to a wider audience as well. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with the co-writers, co-producers and co-directors of this 
wonderful narrative film called Rose Plays Julie. It is available starting on August 20th here in the United States on Amazon Prime and will soon be available in a theatrical release in Great Britain. So I'm going to leave it to Christine to explain all of the particulars about that. In the UK and Ireland, its release is on the 17th of September. Um, and well, we're just keeping our fingers crossed that we're able to stick to that. It's moved around quite a bit since, um, you know, 2019, but hopefully that it'll now actually happen. So it's a theatrical release and it'll also be available online. And in the States, as you said, it's available online at the moment and also on DVD. I want to go back and sort of recap the the storyline for Rose Plays Julie. Rose has found out who her birth mother is through a series of maneuvers. I don't know exactly how you say that, but she determines who she is. She finds out where she lives and goes there using kind of a, a guise to, to actually get to close enough to her to be able to see her. At first, there is this uncertainty as to how far she's willing to take this, how far she's willing to go to kind of reconnect with her birth mother. And it is, as we see over the course of the film, how determined Rose seems to be. She starts to kind of ratchet up her desire, essentially letting her mom know that that's what her intentions are. As the film goes on, it becomes more and more aggressive in the, in that regard. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I, I think she gets initially after, I mean, we used to have versions in the script where we would have her literally going through the process, you know, of researching births, deaths and marriages. And, and then we realized, oh my God, this is incredibly tedious. I mean, we like watching those reality programs where people track down their parents when they're handed up for adoption. But I think sometimes that's fine for TV, but in the intensity of a feature film, thinking, okay, let's just cut to the chase a little bit quicker here. But in a sense, I, I guess the big thing for Rose is the initial rejections, uh, is that already she's been rejected as a baby in her mind, and here she is now as an adult being rejected yet again, because, of course, given the backstory, when she uh, get, makes contact with her mother, it just surfaces this history uh, which is deeply problematic, which is sense, is what the entire film's about. Although from our point of view, we've always seen it as a, a love story between a mother and a daughter. It's, it, that's essentially the crux of the relationship and the, and the core of the story. Although a slightly unusual one and at, at times a dark one, uh, basically it's a love story between a mother and a, and a daughter. But it, it's, a, it's a difficult road for them to find that love. It doesn't come easy. They have to, you know, jump over several hurdles to find that. Yeah. Here in the UK and Ireland, and I'm sure it's the same in America, um, adoption is also a really problematic area and, a, and a, has an incredibly fraught and problematic history. And, um, and, it's, and it's unresolved and ongoing. So in Ireland, we've got lots of problems around um, closed adoptions, linking back to all those dark days of mother and baby homes and children being sold into adoption by, you know, um, convents with um, the knowledge of the state and them not intervening. And then also just all the shame around, you know, becoming pregnant outside of marriage and 
um, leading to uh, factory forced adoptions. And then how little um, access then adopted children have to their records unless the birth mother gives permission. So although we didn't take that on, it informs the background of Rose Place Judy. So we don't take it on as an issue, but it's there because Rose hasn't gone through the normal channels. I mean, you really shouldn't just phone your birth mother out of the blue like that. It's not okay. <laughs> it's not a very smart thing to do. And it's certainly not something that you would recommend somebody do. do. But in our mind, she's already... Um, come up against obstacles and then decides to go rogue and this is what she does and of course the other side of the equation is the the mother who gave the child up and most times women who give children up for adoption do it for very good reasons and often for because of difficult reasons or because of trauma or because of hardship or I mean there's so many stories we that we all are aware of and a lot of us will have um, you know, adoption stories in our own families or, you know, friends we know um, who have been adopted or have adopted, etc. So there's the other side of the story, which is Ellen, who's approached out of the blue um, by the daughter she gave up, maybe knowing somewhere along the line this child might come back to, um, you know, to seek me out, but maybe not expecting it to happen in such a you know, unexpected and surprising way. Um, so she's completely cut off guard. And as Joe said, there's this new rejection, which is, I don't want to know who you are. Get out of my life. I don't want you here. There are so many things about this film that impressed me on a lot of different levels. The emotional level, understanding how this story appeared to be playing out, the technical side of it, setting a particular tone, and a look and staying true to that for the entire film. But this particular part of the film where they are beginning to talk to one another and really understand where they each are coming from and how, as I said earlier, there's a sort of dawning realization between the two of them about a particular direction that this is going. And I hesitate to get too far into this because I don't want to give away more about the story than I think is necessary here. But watching the two of them become familiar with one another and understand each other's internal kind of landscape of their psychology and understanding why Ellen did what she did and why she was so reticent to want to ever see her daughter. It's just so well done. There's this almost Ingmar Bergman persona feel to the film where... They go from knowing nothing about each other to a point where it almost feels telepathic is too strong of a word, but they seem to innately know things about one another and what motivates each other in a way that is just just remarkable in terms of the way you're able to to make this all work is I just I, I stand in awe of how well this film works on that very visceral level. Well, I, th I think in terms of the, the, there are some certain things that you can do at the beginning and consciously do um, to impact on what the final film will, will be. There's always something out of your control about what the final film will be because you're never quite sure how it'll turn out. And um, because, you know, 
until you put it all together in the in the timeline in the edit. Now you can work on a script and control that to some degree because you might be writing it over a number of years, and you can control what the, what the edit is. But that's only based on what the material is that you're being given as an editor. When you're actually filming, it's normally counted out in how many days filming you have. So in our first film, we had 14 days to shoot it, 14 days on camera. For uh, Rose Place Julie, I think we had 22, 23, 22. So, and that's basically just, that's all just about money. But it just means that when you start filming, you have 22 days to film everything and that's it. And But if you run over or if you are still working a scene too much, that's fine. It just means that the after lunch, the scene you were hoping to get isn't going to happen. And so you're going to drop that scene or maybe you'll do it, but just speed it up and maybe it's not so good. And so it's really hard to tonally deliver the script in 22 days. As Steven Soderbergh says, it's like making a feature film. It's like trying to make a mosaic 10 miles long with your nose six inches off the ground. You never really get a chance to sit back and have a look at it until it's too late. And then God knows what you've made. It could be a monster by the time. And that happens. It's amazing that any film ever gets made at all, frankly. But in terms of the things that are in your control, you can choose to shoot on film or digital. This was our first digital film. Uh, we always shot on 35 millimeter. You can choose the aspect ratio. So we always work CinemaScope. We don't work Academy or 16 by 9 or 185. So CinemaScope has got a very particular look. It's obviously very, it, it works best in a cinema, but you can still feel its quality is on, on, uh, online as well. But it's a very cinematic form. Uh, at the same time, you can also, because of budget constraints and speed, you can choose just to work mostly with natural light and also not work with much artificial light, nothing you can't plug into a wall socket, you know, as opposed to getting big, powerful lights, which cost a lot of money and they're very, very slow. And we hate that. You know what I mean? We hate standing around trying to get the right shot. It's like we've got a amount of time to get the shot right, but let's keep it, let's try and keep it really, really simple. But then after that, it's about rhythm. And that's a whole other thing. And just for whatever, no matter how much we try and speed up, we just seem incredibly slow. We just like slow scenes. And um, and when we have a dialogue between people, we try not to sex it up with lots of swooshing movements and because that drives us nuts, you know, and we see something like that. And we love films. You mentioned Bergman earlier on, but we, we love the use of the camera but it's very simple you know what I mean they're often locked off shots and you let or maybe they're gently moving but you're letting the performances really do do the business as opposed to a lot of contemporary filmmaking uh, some of which we like but then some of which we don't like which is like overworked with the camera for fear the audience might get bored and uh, maybe we either we don't, we're not bothered about the audience getting bored or we just don't care, Mike. And if they're going to go with the movie, let them really go with it. Because I did say to my sister once, you know, what do you what do you when you're looking for a film? What are you looking for? And she says, just something with a bit of pace. And I went, oh, my God, that's the requirement for a movie is to have a bit of pace. And I said, we're screwed because it's the one thing we don't really have a lot of is like fast cuts milling around lots of action it is it, it's quite um meditative 
Mm. Yeah, there's a poetry to that. And if you can lock into the rhythm of that, I guess if it had a musical style, it would be jazz or trip hop. It wouldn't be, you know, drum and bass, you know, or acid house. It, it's at that end of the spectrum. But in a way, it, once you find that that's the rhythm you want, it's much better to play into that strength rather than trying to deny it or trying to, for, to force it to be something that ultimately isn't in your spirit or soul. You know, this is how you want the, the rhythm of the film to be. And that is a conscious thing, you know, about, you know, it's you can speed certain things up, of course, and it's not like we're lounging in time, but these aren't like four-hour movies. You know, there are like, you know, 90 minutes, 95, 100 minutes. Um, I think Rose Pace Judy's maybe 94, 95 minutes. So it's not like mm-hmm. it doesn't overstay its welcome. But we would rather approach the cinematography in a simple way uh, and let and let the performances really do the work rather than the camera. I, I kind of um, see it also as an invitation to the audience. And it's 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 risky because not everybody, you know, wants to enter into the space of the film as we're offering that the film that we're offering up to them. And I think that you put it quite well, Mike, that, you know, they the film is quiet in comparison to a lot of films, but we try to open a bit of space for the audience and to ask them to come into the world of the film. We're interested in people thinking. I know that there's a lot of interest in people doing things and being busy. Um, we also like to see people think and try and figure things out because I think that's what we do as human beings. We try to connect with each other. We try to understand each other. We try to figure things out. And it's the same also. We haven't mentioned Aidan Gillen, who plays the role of the the birth father in the film, but it's the the same with Aidan's character as well. We want to be able to hang out in his world too. So creating a world for each of our characters and that the audience can enter into is really, really important. Maybe one of the guiding things in terms of how we develop the story. So Rose's world, she's a veterinary science student. Her mother, who's an actress, who has another child. And so Rose discovers that she has this um, half-sister. And then um, Peter Doyle, who's an archaeologist, who's written a book. So he's got a bit of a reputation. Um, and just allowing these worlds to overlap like this strange Venn diagram and creating these moments with our um, characters is really important. And I would say, I don't know whether it's something to do with television. Maybe it is. And, and the way um, TV programs have to exist over time, therefore, you have to just keep filling the screen and the time with stuff. And there's always loads of backstory or red herrings and things like that. We askew that completely. So our, our characters tend not to have those backstories that are revealed. It's like, here they are, and this is what's happening now. Um, and we can kind of fill in from this few clues that we get, bits of backstory, if that's what we want as an audience. But we're trying to stay in the moment the, of the, um, the story. Well, I want to thank you both as the co-writers, co-producers, as well as co-directors of Rose Plays Julie. We've been talking with Christine Malloy and Joe Lawlor, the, uh, as I said, the aforementioned, <laughs> a phenomenally well-done film. Thoroughly enjoyed the acting, I've, the storyline, the look of the film, everything about it. It is well worth checking out. You can go to uh, check it out. 
currently on Amazon Prime. And if you're in Great Britain, you can find it via the theatrical release. It's been an honor. It's been a true honor to be able to have this conversation with you about Rose Plays Julie. And I look forward to more work from you as well as an opportunity to have another conversation with you. So thank you so much for being here on Film School Radio. Just to say thank you, Mike, for your, your support on the project. So thank you. Thank yeah, you. really appreciate it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.